This is Mountaintop History, telling the story of Monticello and all who lived and labored at this plantation. My name is Kyle Charlton, and today we're focusing on the stories of those enslaved individuals and families who worked in the fields of the Monticello Plantation. Monticello is one of the most well-documented plantations in North America, allowing for stories, like that of the Hemings family, to be shared with visitors who travel to this historic site today. The Hemings family was one of dozens recorded in Thomas Jefferson's farm book, and many of those families' lives are more difficult to piece together, especially those who lived in the fields of Monticello. Nevertheless, much work has been done to tell their stories. To help tell their stories, I spoke with Ashley Hollinshead, house tour supervisor and Monticello guide at the Thomas Jefferson Foundation. All right. So, you know, Ashley, thanks so much for uh, joining us, uh, you know, for a conversation about uh, the the lives of, of those who lived and labored out in the plantation fields of Monticello. Um, sometimes stories that don't get uh, shared too often or heard too often, or at least not often enough. Um, and we know that Monticello was uh, not only the, the name of Jefferson's home, of course, but it was also the name of the central farm of Jefferson's 5,000-acre plantation. Uh, can you explain for us what did it mean that Monticello was a plantation and what made the Monticello plantation unique? Yeah, so I think oftentimes when we hear that name Monticello, we immediately what comes to mind is the picture of the house on the back of the nickel, right? That nickel view of Monticello, when in reality Monticello was talking about Thomas Jefferson's entire 5,000-acre plantation, 5,000 acres at its height, Think about this encompassing roughly eight square miles of land. Such a large piece of property that Jefferson organized it into smaller farms that he referred to as quarter farms. So he had one farm named Lego, Shadwell, which is where he was born, and a final uh, farm that he called Tufton, and then of course the Monticello Home Farm, which is the historic mountaintop that visitors can see today. And, and what was life like for the enslaved community who lived and labored in the fields as opposed to those who worked in and around the Monticello mansion, say, on Mulberry Row? Absolutely. So we think about the enslaved families at Monticello. We have documentation of over two dozen surnames of enslaved families um, at Monticello, most of whom were not in close contact with Thomas Jefferson and his family, meaning that they're not living and laboring on the, the mountaintop along Mulberry Row or inside the house, they are laboring in those fields as enslaved field laborers, cultivating tobacco and wheat, these cash crops. Because they are living their lives far away from the mountaintop, they do appear less in the historical records than, say, members of the Hemings family who were working on the mountaintop in those closer um, contact points with Jefferson and his family members. Um, so when we think about some of these, these families, like, say, the Granger family, we know that they appear in Jefferson's farm book, but not often enough. So we have to try to piece together their lives and their stories using other historical documentation. We can't just rely on the written primary sources. And many of the people who were enslaved in the fields as well were not literate, that we know of anyway. So we don't have memoirs or... Um, letters written by them so we don't know their own personal thoughts, their feelings, their emotions. But using things like archaeology, um, our archaeologists here at Monticello have been working not only along Mulberry Row but across what was the 5,000 acre plantation and they have unearthed 
hundreds of thousands of objects that help us to better understand who people like the Grangers were as people, not just as names in a record um, in Jefferson's farm book. And so, uh, yeah, can, can we go in that direction then? So what, who, who are the Grangers and, and what are maybe the, the challenges of, of telling their story and, and, and what, what, what about their story can we share with our visitors today? Yeah, so the, the Granger family, kind of the, the matriarch and patriarch of the Granger family was uh, an enslaved woman named Ursula Granger and her husband, George Granger Sr. Um, these two uh, people were some of the first people who were enslaved here at Monticello when Jefferson's moving here and establishing Monticello as his plantation. Um, Ursula Granger, she actually served as a wet nurse to Jefferson's eldest daughter, Martha Randolph. Um, so she literally kept Jefferson's daughter alive um, following her birth. And George and Ursula Granger had a number of, of kids. One of their, their kids was named Bagwell Granger, and he married a woman named Minerva. And Bagwell and Minerva Granger, they appear in Jefferson's farm book. Um, they appear as farm laborers. But again, using that archaeology, we can understand a little bit more about what one of their houses might have looked like, um, kind of piecing together what a cabin for an enslaved person might have looked like. Um, also knowing some of the tools that they would have been using, like hoes and such to cultivate wheat. Um, we also know through archaeology what types of foods that they were eating, not just through the rations that they're being given, but through the gardens that they're cultivating themselves as a way to take control and resist, right? They're resisting by not only planting their own foods, but this is a way for them to choose what they're going to be eating and what they're putting into their bodies. So it's taking back that measure of control over their bodies, as well as forming a little bit more of an identity with culture. And, and let's, let's go in, in that direction too, then, you know, we know that slavery at Monticello was enforced uh, by individuals such as Jefferson um, through violence and other acts that worked to ultimately dehumanize people. Um, how did slavery dictate the lives of the enslaved community in Monticello? And, uh, you know, can you give us more examples of, you know, ways in which this community oftentimes, you know, resisted and fought back against their oppression? Yeah, you know, we think about those, those quarter farms where families like the Grangers are enslaved and laboring. And because they are located away from the mountaintop, Jefferson did hire overseers. Um, typically white overseers who are essentially overseeing and managing what's going on on those quarter farms. And we have many documentations that some of these overseers were quite, quite cruel and in some instances quite violent to um, the people who were enslaved at Monticello. And we know that Jefferson is aware that this violence is happening. Um, he gets letters about the violence from some of his overseers, and we see for the most part nothing happens because of this violence that enslaved people are receiving. Um, because Jefferson, you know, as he's writing that slavery is evil, he's doing that from personal experience, right? Because he is aware that violence and the coercion of the whip fundamentally underlie the workings of a plantation. And in order to have a plantation, there has to be violence and terrorism in order to enforce the work that's happening. In one instance, an individual named James Hubbard made a second escape from the Monticello plantation. He evaded capture for over a year, but was apprehended and brought back to Monticello in shackles. 
Jefferson writes that, quote, I had him severely flogged in the presence of his old companions and committed to jail, end quote. Presumably so that Hubbard's treatment might serve as a warning to other members of the enslaved community who might choose to resist. But escaping the plantation wasn't the only way in which individuals like Hubbard fought back against their enslavement. I mean, you can see things like um, active resistance, right, perhaps not working um, as fast as, as someone could have. Maybe a tool broke, and instead of immediately fixing it, it might take two or three days for that tool to be fixed. Um, tools being lost is another way of resistance, this more active resistance against the institution of slavery. And then you've got more passive forms of resistance, just the formation of families, right? You think about slavery, it's the only thing certain is uncertainty, and families could be separated at a moment's notice. We know that roughly two-thirds of the people enslaved here at Monticello did experience some type of family separation, and so families like the Grangers would have been well aware of this as a possibility. Um, so the fact that they are forming those tight familial bonds is in essence, a resistance to slavery, but also holding on to traditions and cultures from Africa. We know that the Granger family, when they became ill, they sought out a traditional African healer, a man living more than 20 miles from Monticello, which is a pretty extensive travel 200 years ago. And if the Granger family is familiar, we know of another enslaved man at Monticello seeking out the same healer for, for, um, uh, to treat his illness as well showing a tangible link that people here in Virginia during this time are holding on to traditions and cultures from Africa and they're still practicing this. Um, so I think if we you know look closely at lives for enslaved people we can see day-to-day -day resistance that's not open violent rebellion right but just looking at what daily life is like we find those little pockets of resistance where people are continuously asserting their humanity. And uh, with all that being said, Ashley, you know, do you have any final thoughts about, about this community, their stories, what we can, can learn about their lives, and maybe make those connections between you know, past and present? Uh, 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 any, any final thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think when we look at the fact that people like the Grangers, um, and we're very lucky in the records here at Monticello that we do know the Granger family and we have their names because in many instances we don't have the names of enslaved laborers. And so acknowledging that we have their names and trying to piece together their lives with the information that we do have is incredibly important. But recognizing too that the fact that most of their lives, many of the lives of enslaved laborers is lost to history is a form of racism that's present in the archives and still present to this day. One historian, he, he says that to be a person is to have a story, and to be denied a story is to be marked for obscurity and oppression. Um, so if you're familiar with the musical Hamilton, right, I like to, to make this, this connection. There's a song titled, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story. And there's a stanza that says, and when you're gone, who remembers your name, who keeps your flame, who tells your story? And I think those stories are incredibly important in illustrating that the institution of slavery affected individuals and people, right? Human beings were affected, and it gives names to the people who were enslaved here because they're not just statistics. They were people. 
Well, thanks so much, Ashley, for your time and, and for sharing this information with us today. Absolutely. This has been another edition of Mountaintop History, a collaboration between WTJU and the Thomas Jefferson Foundation. Mountaintop History is also supported by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. To learn more and to plan your next visit, go to monticello.org.